Acts chapter 17, verses 1 through 15. Maria and I don't like deviled eggs. Several of you know that now because she, she posted that on Facebook a few weeks ago. And it's when she posted that that we realized how polarizing of a comment that is, how polarizing deviled eggs are. Doesn't make much sense to me. I think I know how the Lord feels about deviled eggs, although he doesn't say it specifically in the word, so I can't preach that, but I think I know what he thinks about it. There, there are some things in life that create a dichotomy between two options. There are certain polarizing issues where you, one group's on one side, one group's on the other. Some things that form a, a really stark contrast between two decisions. Well, the Word of God is at the top of that list. So the way people respond to the Bible, the way people respond to God's Word and the Gospel creates two groups. Folks are either for the Word or they're against the Word. There's no middle ground there's this stark contrast, and, and that's what our passage is about this morning, the centrality of the Bible and how people respond to it. So hear the word of the Lord, Acts 17, 1 through 15. Now, when they had passed through Amphilops and Apoll- uh, Ap- <laughs> Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica. And this, of course, it's talking about Paul and Silas on the second missionary journey. They came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in, and as was his custom— On three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, and saying, this Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. But the Jews were jealous, and taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob, set the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, These men who have turned the world upside down and have come here also, and Jason has received them, and they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying there is another king, Jesus. And the people in the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. And when they had taken money as security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. The brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea, and when they arrived, they went into the Jewish synagogue. Now, these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Many of them therefore believed, with not a few Greek women of high standing as well as men. But when the Jews from Thessalonica learned that the word of God was proclaimed by Paul at Berea also, they came there too, agitating and stirring up the crowds. Then the brothers immediately sent Paul off on his way to the sea, but Silas and Timothy remained there. Those who conducted Paul brought him as far as Athens, and after receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him as soon as possible, they departed. Well, our passage this morning is real clear. It sets up a dichotomy, right, between these two different options. So Paul, he's continuing on a second missionary journey with Silas, and our passage, it covers two different cities, two stops, Thessalonica and Berea. That's the way that the passage is kind of split in half. And what what we're clearly supposed to see is the difference in the ways the Jews from the two different towns received the word of God. That's the dichotomy that's set up for us. They, they respond to the Bible in two very different ways, which really means they're responding to Jesus in two very different ways. In fact, even though Paul is preaching from the scriptures in our passage, he's proclaiming the word of God. Look at how he can also characterize it at the end of verse three. He says, this Jesus whom I proclaim to you. So what that shows, by proclaiming the Bible, Paul is at the same time proclaiming Jesus. 
So your response to Jesus's word is your response to Jesus. That's where oftentimes people miss that. They think that they can have good feelings about Jesus, but then sort of trash his word and think it's full of errors and they don't have to obey it. That doesn't work. No, they're, they're basically one and the same in terms of authority. Jesus's word is Jesus's word. It's, it's from him. So the way you respond to Jesus's word is how you're responding to Jesus. And so the question for us is how, how do we respond to the Bible? How do you respond to the Bible? Well, our passage tells us at least three main ways to respond to God's word, and that's how we'll look at the passage. So first, reason from the Bible. It's the first thing we're going to see. Second, read the Bible. And third, trust the Bible. So first, reason from the Bible. So at the beginning of our passage, Paul and Silas, they've just left Philippi because of persecution. That's why they've come out. Now they continue on through Europe, preaching the gospel. And in our passage in Acts 17, they come to the city of Thessalonica, which was the the capital city of the region. And because it's bigger than Philippi, it actually has a synagogue. So remember at Philippi, they have to go down to the river and find this group of folks that are praying because there's no synagogue. But this is a bigger city here, Thessalonica. They've got a synagogue. The Jewish population is bigger, and they would gather to worship God according to the Old Testament. So this is Paul's custom. You'll remember every time he goes into town, if there's a synagogue, that's always where he starts. He goes to the synagogue first to proclaim God's word. That's what happens in verse 2. And Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the Scriptures. And this is the first point for us this morning, reason from the Bible. So Paul, he goes to these folks who are seeking to follow the Lord. These are Jews and what's called God-fearing Gentiles. Or another way to say it, like we see in verse 4, devout Greeks. So these are folks that aren't Jews, that are interested, that are sort of pursuing the God of Israel, but they haven't become Jews so it's this group of people gathering at the synagogues. Paul goes to them to proclaim the gospel. He, he's going to try to convince them that Jesus is the Savior that God has sent. That's his mission in the synagogues. He's trying to convince them Jesus is the Savior that God has sent. So, so how does he go about that? Does he begin by arguing from his own experience or from, from pragmatism maybe? No. He begins with the scriptures. Look at what the Bible provides here. Verse 2 again, and Paul went in, and as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, and saying, this Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. So why does Paul reason from the Bible? Well, it's because as verse 3 says, the Bible explains and it proves. See those two verbs there in verse 3? The Bible explains and it proves. So so what is it that the Bible explains and proves? Verse 3 again, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead. The Bible explains and proves the gospel, the good message about Christ, who he is, what he's done for us to take care of our, our sins. So, so first, we'll come to the prove part in a second, but first the Bible explains the gospel. So it's the Bible that tells us who Jesus is, the fact that he's fully God and he's fully man, the fact that he was sent to our world by God the Father to live a perfect life, and then like Paul says here, to suffer on the cross. And why did he have to suffer? He had to suffer because he had to pay for our sins. Christ on the cross was standing in our place, bearing the wrath of God that we deserve because of our sins. He bore it on himself on the cross, suffering there to pay for our sins. Because God is good and just, he can't overlook sin. He can't sweep it under the rug. 
the way that bad human authorities oftentimes do. He has to deal with it. And so he deals with it by sending his son, and Christ pays for the sins, the punishment that we deserve. And this is something that was extremely counterintuitive for the Jews. So the Israelites would have found this message really off-putting. It didn't make much sense. So they were waiting for a savior. There was no question about that. Paul and the Jews were in the same category there. They were waiting for a savior. That's what that title, the Christ, in verse 3 is conveying. Christ isn't Jesus's last name, right? It's a title. Jesus was his name. He is the Christ. That just means God's chosen savior. That's what Christ means. That's what Messiah means. God's chosen savior. So the Jews, they knew a savior was coming, but, but the thought of this kind of savior, the kind of savior Jesus is, made no sense to the Jews. When they thought of a savior, they thought of a conqueror, right? Somebody who would come and just squash their enemies right away. There would be no suffering on the part of the savior. They didn't, they didn't have a category for that. Now, they should have, we see that in the Old Testament, in Isaiah in particular. You read Isaiah 53, it's clear. It's a suffering Savior. But, but they kind of hadn't connected the dots, so they thought the Savior was only going to be a conqueror. And, and we're tempted to do that sometimes. Now, not with the way we look at Jesus. We understand, no, the Savior had to suffer and die. That's good. We get that as Christians. But, but sometimes we're tempted to think about the Christian life in that way where the Christian life is only conquering, where there's no suffering. So you probably, you probably feel this way. Aren't, aren't you sometimes tempted to think that as a Christian, Jesus should only bring you victory after victory after victory, that there should be no falling down. So, so your work life should be easy, you might think. You know, I follow Christ, right? Christ is the Savior. My work life should be easy. My family life should be perfect. My spiritual life should be sinless. Right? I should be able to, to conquer all of these things. He's the Savior, and Savior's conquer, right? We have to remember the way Jesus conquered began by his dying. And see, we follow the same pattern. So Jesus rose from the dead. Paul talks about that in verse 3. He rose from the dead. That shows that, that he was perfect and innocent and able to, to be a perfect sacrifice for our sins. And of course, one day we will rise from the dead as Christians, but that day isn't here yet. See, at this point in your Christian life, you're not resurrected. You're, you're still in that first part where there's suffering, where things aren't perfect. So this is what Paul is reminding us of, what he was trying to teach the Jews. Christ is a suffering Savior. But praise the Lord, he is a Savior, and he rose from the dead. That's why he can pay for our sins. His work on the cross is, is perfect. And if you're here and you're not a Christian, you don't know what you think about Jesus, the way for you to become innocent of all of your sins, in God's eyes, to get that innocent verdict, to have your sins forgiven, is, is to trust in Christ alone, to believe that his blood on the cross will pay for your sins when you trust in him and follow him. So that's the good news of the gospel. As Christians, that's what we have to offer you. We don't have health and wealth. There's no guarantees about ease of life, none of that. But what we can guarantee to you is that if you'll trust in Christ, your biggest problem will be taken care of, which is your sins will be covered. So talk to me or another member of our church if you're interested in talking more about that, about trusting in Christ and in the gospel. But see, here's the point. None of what I just said is intuitive apart from Scripture. That gospel that we just talked about, who Christ is, his work on the cross, his resurrection, you can't walk through the woods and put that together, right? 
I told my kids that before when we're walking in the woods behind our house. When we look at these squirrels and these chipmunks and these trees and all this stuff, if you had never heard the gospel, could you look at all that and put it together and be like, you know what? I bet there was a guy that came who was fully God and fully man and who suffered God's wrath on the cross and rose from the dead to prove that he was who he said he was. And that if I trust in him alone, works have nothing to do with it. If I trust in him alone, then that'll provide me forgiveness of sins. Nope. It's fun to watch the squirrels and the chipmunks in the trees. They're not going to teach you that lesson, right? That's, that's not there. You, you can't do it with human experience. You can't add all your human experience together and end up intuiting that, that Christ rose from the dead or that he died on the cross. There's a story you may have heard, uh, in particular, if you, if you had an intro to philosophy class. Plato tells this story about Socrates, you know, the, so, uh, the Socratic method, where you ask questions to teach somebody something. Well, there's this story about Socrates, who knows if it really happened, Plato said it did, where he takes an uneducated slave boy who doesn't know anything about mathematics, and Socrates asks him a series of questions, and by the end of it, he's gotten this slave boy to recite the Pythagorean theorem, the A squared plus B squared equals C squared, which does something. I have no idea what that theorem does, but they use it, and praise God for it. I don't know, it keeps bridges from falling down. I don't know. Thankful for smart people. But anyway, the the gospel isn't like that. It's not inside where our logic has the pieces and you can just ask the right questions and people can put it together. No, the gospel has to be revealed to us. But that's what the Bible does. The Bible reveals the gospel. In the words of verse 3, the Bible explains the gospel of Jesus Christ. So that's that's half of why you need to reason from the Bible, because it's only the Bible that explains the gospel. So when you're talking to a fellow believer, don't lean on your own wisdom and experience. It's good to leverage those things to a degree, but you've got to start with the Bible in the way that we encourage and comfort one another and challenge one another. But, but this is important to, to remember too. Paul isn't just throwing Bible verses at these Jews. No, he, he is reasoning. That word is there for, for a reason, right? He's connecting those Bible verses together, and this is what we're supposed to do too. In the words of verse 2, we're supposed to reason from the scriptures. That means we connect scripture and reason. We're resting our arguments on the Bible, but we're also not just reciting Bible verses to each other. Like it's a magic verse book and you can just say those words and then turn around and walk away. No, we're supposed to connect those things. We're, We're supposed to explain. This is what the Bible is saying. We're supposed to do that with one another as well. Reason from the scriptures. So we reason from the Bible because the Bible explains. But then the second half of why you should reason from the Bible is that God's word doesn't only explain, it also proves. The Bible proves. Look at the end of verse 2. He reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and rise from the dead. So we want to reason from the Bible because the Bible proves the gospel. This is exactly what Luke the author of Acts, remember he wrote a gospel too. It's exactly what, how he opens the gospel of Luke. Listen to what he says. It's Luke chapter 1, verse 3. He says, It seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, the guy who's writing the gospel of Luke too, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. So Luke says, God's word is enough to make you certain of the things it says. The Bible proves everything it says. It's important to understand that. The Bible proves everything it says. The moment the Bible says something, that thing has become proven, 
period, paragraph. The moment the Bible says something, that thing has become proven. And see, that's slightly different from just saying the Bible is true, which of course it is. No, the fact the Bible proves what it says, that goes beyond it being merely true. It's also proven. I can tell you guys that me and the kids ate Kentucky Fried Chicken this past week because Maria was out of town. And you might believe me, but of course it, it hasn't been proven to you. So if you, got, if you got dragged into court and you had to be a witness in some case that involved that detail, which hopefully will not happen, and the judge asks you, did Scott's kids eat Kentucky Fried Chicken? You would have to say, well, he told me they did, but I didn't, I didn't see it happen, right? You can say what I said, but of course you can't say that it's been, it's been proven. But, but see, this is where the Bible's different. The Bible's testimony is always enough to prove something. Always. It doesn't need any other evidence. If the Bible says it, it's been proven. And the judge of the universe will expect you, every person in this room, to believe everything the Bible says, right? Whether you're a Christian or a non-Christian, he'll expect you to believe everything the Bible says. You, you may think God will give you a pass for ignoring his word because you didn't feel personally convinced that it was true. But, but what you need to understand is you're not the arbiter of truth, and, and I'm not either. It doesn't, it doesn't matter one iota if we think the case for Jesus' death and resurrection is a good case. Doesn't matter, right? Your evaluation of it doesn't matter. God's word says it happened. That means it's an open and shut case. There is 100% certainty. And this is good news for us as Christians. You can be 100% certain of something if the Bible says it. Isn't that good? How many other authorities are there like that? None. Everybody messes up at certain times. Everybody gets something wrong. But you can be 100% certain about something when the Bible says it. So, so when the Bible tells you not to steal, you don't have to ask other people's advice about that. Like, hey, what's your experience been with stealing, right? Where you try to put all that evidence together. You don't have to do that. The Bible tells you that, and the Bible is proof enough. When, when the Bible tells you to be baptized, you don't have to pray about that. Every now and then, I'll come across believers where there's something that you can show them in the Bible. Hey, it says to do this. And then they'll say, I'll pray about it. No, you don't. Who do you think you're praying to? The same one that wrote the Bible. It's there. If the Bible says something, that's proof enough. When, when 1 Corinthians tells you to be a member of a particular local church, you, you don't have to make a pros and cons list for that decision. No, the Bible tells you that the Bible is proof enough. So, so reason from the Bible for yourself, and, and if the Bible says that thing, consider that thing proved. So if you're a follower of Christ, that's, that's the question for you, is do you reason from the Bible? Is that where you start? You can think practically. When, when you're making a parenting decision, do you start there? Do you start there? Do you start with the question, does the Bible have anything to say about this decision? That's always the place we should start. Now, really quick, you can rule that out of hand. If, you know, what color shirt should I wear this morning? Okay, the Bible doesn't say anything about that, right? But lots of decisions, of course, the Bible does. What about decisions with your money or with your time? What about decisions in your relationships with your friends or your spouse? Do, do you start by thinking about what the Bible's teaching is on that particular topic? Verse 2 in our passage, and Paul went in, and as was his custom, on three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the scriptures. So reason from the Bible. But it should be clear that if we're going to reason from the Bible, that presupposes we are reading the Bible. 
And this is our second point this morning. Read the Bible. So like, like we mentioned before, this passage of Scripture is set up as a dichotomy between these two different groups of Jews. And even though Paul is reasoning from the Bible in Thessalonica, the majority of the Jews there reject the Bible. They reject God's word about Jesus and the gospel. Look at verse 5. But the Jews were jealous, and taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob, set the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. So they rejected God's word. And that's why Paul leaves when he does. Verse 10. The brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. And when they arrived, they went into the Jewish synagogue. Now, again, this this is meant to create a stark contrast. So that's one group of Jews. They reject him. They kick him out of town aggressively, right? They're angry about it. But then that sets up this dichotomy in verse 11 with this second group of Jews in Berea. Look at verse 11. Now, these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. So, So as Paul's preaching the gospel to these folks in Berea, they are examining the scriptures, we're told. They're reading the Bible. Now, now their example to us, it's not simply to read the Bible. It's it's more particular than that. These Bereans are reading the Bible in a certain way, this passage tells us. So first of all, look at the frequency with which they're studying the word. End of verse 11, they're examining the scriptures daily. And that's a good template for us. Study the Bible every day. Read the Bible daily. Don't forget one of the passages Jesus responds to Satan with when he's being tempted in the Gospels. This is Matthew chapter 4, verse 4. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. So he compares Bible reading, Bible intake, he compares it to eating food. Now, now many of us, there, there might be a day where, where we go only eating one meal, so I did that on Friday just because of certain circumstances. That probably happens to you too. But I doubt many of us go a day where we don't eat a meal at all, right? And it's not thoughtful like we're fasting for a particular purpose. I think most of us don't do that. Well, our Bible reading should be the same. So for the Christian, God's word is food for you. In fact, the main difference between Bible reading and literal food is that literal food can only nourish you for the next few decades, Right? until your body is dead, until you're in the ground, while God's word will sustain you into eternity. Listen to Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 47. For God's word is no empty word for you, but it is your very life. And by this word, you shall live long in the land that you are going over the Jordan to possess. And so the Bereans are reading God's word daily. And this is something we can all do, right? We can all carve out time to do this, but it does come at a price. So we have to remember that at the front end. Time is a commodity. For some of us, we think it's the most valuable commodity. So that's the question. Are you willing to pay that price for the food of Scripture? Are you willing to watch one less show on Netflix so you can fill yourself up with God's Word? Or are you willing to look 30 minutes less at Facebook posts so that you can see Jesus more clearly in Scripture? Or are you willing to miss out on a little bit of sleep each morning so your spirit can be built up in the gospel as it's presented in the Bible? And, and if you are willing, but if you understand this is going to be something that's difficult for me, get accountability, right? Ask your spouse to ask you that question. 
Ask, ask another member of your church to ask you periodically if, if you're reading the word daily. And then they can remind you why that discipline is so crucial, why it's so life-giving. But, but you may be one of those people who's good at completing tasks. So you know the task, you can complete it. Some of you guys are built that way. It's kindness of the Lord, right, that some people are built that way. So you might think, great, no problem. I can read the Bible every day. Done. But it's not, it's not quite as simplistic as that. See, we're, we're also taught something here about what our attitude should be when we come to the Bible. Verse 11 again. Now, these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness. So the Berean Jews were eager for the word. They wanted it. They were aiming for it. And this is a good reminder. The Lord is always interested in our hearts. Always, right? Other religions usually aren't like that. If you've only been in the Christian church, you might not know what I'm about to tell you. Most religions, the God of their religion, couldn't care less what's happening in your heart. He just wants you to walk through the motions. So Allah in Islam, there's five pillars that they're supposed to obey, right? Praying, fasting, almsgiving, to say that there's only one God and and, uh, that it's not Christ is sort of the subtext there. And then that pilgrimage to Mecca that they make at some point during their life. If you're doing those things... Allah couldn't care less what's going on in your heart if you're doing it joyfully or begrudgingly. He doesn't care. He just wants you to do those particular things. That's how most idols work. That's how man-made religion works. But, But see, the one true God, he cares about your heart more than anything else. He wants your heart. That's why in Amos chapter 5, verse 21, God says, I hate, I despise your religious feasts. Even though you offer me your burnt offerings, I will not accept them. See, God knew he didn't have those people's hearts that Amos is is writing to. So he wasn't interested in them walking through the motions. But see, he has the Bereans' hearts. And so when they read the word, they're doing it eagerly. They want to be doing it. They're desiring it. During the Protestant Reformation, the Bible began to uh, be translated in the vernacular. It was only Latin before that, and only scholars could read Latin. But then it starts to be translated in English and in French and in German. And there's these stories about those translations getting delivered to churches. And somebody who could read, which wasn't many people, they would read the translation. And the people would gather around to hear the Bible for the first time in their own tongue. Isn't that incredible? There were times even when when a preacher in a church would be preaching a sermon that wasn't based on the gospel at all. And you know what the people were doing? They weren't listening to the guy talking. They were in the back corner around the guy that could read the Bible, and they're listening to the Bible get read. They were eager for it. And of course, all we see this all around us, right? Christian, non-Christian, we know what it looks like to be eager. We've been in the middle of, of trying to sell our house, thinking about buying a house in North Carolina, and, and let me tell you, people are eager to buy houses. <laughs> so, so in North Carolina, a house comes on the market, it's there for a day. You got 24 hours. Isn't that wild? Think about that 10 years ago. And even then, people are offering 10, 20,000 over asking price. Isn't that wild? That's the market that we're in. People are eager to do it. We know what eagerness looks like. So the question for you is, am I eager for the Bible? Am I eager for God's word? Am I eager to read it and to hear it proclaimed? Do I long for the evening after the kids are down so I can thoughtfully read my Bible? Am I excited to wake up in the morning to to be in the Word? When's the last time you were eager to read the Bible? 
the way the Bereans are in, in verse 11. When's the last time you could say what the psalmist does in Psalm 119, verse 24, that God's word is my delight? And if it's been a while, that's, that's no reason for hopelessness, right? Don't be hopeless if you're a Christian and you think, no, I haven't been eager in a while. You don't need to be hopeless. Remember, the Holy Spirit inside of you loves the word. So you've got the equipment that you need, right? You even, even got promises in scripture that your love for God's word will grow. But there are three things you could do to, to give God that opportunity, to give him that avenue, to grow you in your love for your word. Three things, none of them's rocket science. First of all, pray. Pray that he would do it. Pray that he would make you eager. Listen to Psalm 119, verse 32. It's such a helpful verse. Psalm 119, verse 32. The psalmist says, I will run in the way of your commandments when you enlarge my heart. Isn't that good? The psalmist is recognizing, God, you have to change my heart. I can't do it on my own. Another person can't do it for me. You have to change my heart. So pray that he would do that. Second, confess your lack of eagerness to a fellow member so, so they can encourage you in the word, right? And they can pray for you. And then finally, and I think most important, get yourself to the word. Get yourself to the word. If you want to grow in your love for the Bible, read the Bible. If, if you want your heart to be warmed toward the Bible, put your heart close to the heat of God's word. God's word is hot. It will warm your heart if you put your heart there. Verse 11, now these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. So read the Bible. But, but our third point, there's more to it than even that. When you read the Bible... God's calling you to respond to what the word says. And it's our final point this morning, trust the Bible. And again, our passage is set up to show this stark difference between the Jews in Thessalonica and the Jews in Berea. Look again at how the Jews in Thessalonica respond to God's word. Verse four, and some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, and did, as, he did, as did a great many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women, but the Jews were jealous and taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob, set the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, These men have turned the world upside down, and have come here also. And Jason has received them, and they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. And the people in the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. And when they had taken money as security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. And then not only that, when they find out that the folks in the next town are being persuaded by the word, look at what they do then. Verse 13. But when the Jews from Thessalonica learned that the word of God was proclaimed by Paul at Berea, they came there too, agitating and stirring up the crowd. So they are rejecting God's word, right? Two options, receive it or reject it. They're rejecting it. And this is the majority opinion about the Bible throughout human history by far. Most people who have had access to God's word have rejected God's word. Isn't that crazy? It was like that with Israel too. They had access to God's word. The vast majority of the Israelites under the old covenant rejected it. That's the way it's continued to this day. But see, that's how sinful our sinful flesh is. God's word is enough proof in itself. We saw that earlier, but on our own, we'll always reject it every single time. 1 Corinthians 1.18 for the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. 
or 1 Corinthians 2, verse 14. The natural person, so the person that the Spirit hasn't done a work in them, the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. So as sinners on our own, we will always reject God's word. And that rejection, it's not just a half-hearted disinterest. It's full rejection. Now, now, oftentimes the full measure of it doesn't come to the surface because it doesn't have to. But when, when the non-believer's idols get displaced, we saw that last week with that slave girl, she's, she's freed from that demon and then her masters can no longer make money off her. They've lost their money now because of the gospel. That's where the claws come out. It happens here with the Jews. They begin to think this new Christianity is going to take away some of their power or their adherence or their prestige. And that's when they get angry. That's, that's when they get together a mob and go looking for Paul and drag this guy out in order to lynch him just because he owns this house that he's let Paul stay in. And then, of course, they travel to Berea to cause trouble there. They make this charge against the Christians in verse 6 that they have turned the world upside down. And once again, they're, they're trying to protect their idols. In terms of worship, the gospel has turned the world upside down. As sinners, on our, on our own, we'll always reject God's word. But see, the good news for us as believers, the Christian is the one who God has changed. The believer is the one who's been transformed by the Spirit. Look again at the response of the Bereans to God's word. Verse 11. Now, these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word. Now, that word receive is talking about more than merely hearing the word. It's the same way people in this culture would receive somebody into their home, where they're welcoming them in. They're making a home for that person there. And see, that's what we're supposed to do with God's word. As you hear it, you're supposed to welcome it in. In fact, Jesus uses that same word received to talk about the scriptures. This is Luke 8. Verse 13, he says, and the ones on the rock are those who, when they hear the word, receive it with joy. So, so welcome God's word, submit to it, believe it. Or we could sum up all of this by saying, trust it, trust the Bible. Now that means you should trust the promises of scripture, right? That's what we're called to do. So, so do you. When Romans 8 tells you that God works every detail of your life together for your good as a Christian, do you believe that? Do you believe that? When, when Proverbs 18.22 tells you that your wife is a good gift from God, do you believe that? When the entire book of Revelation tells you that Jesus is better than anything this world has to offer, even your own earthly bodily life, do you believe that? Are you trusting the Bible? Or you can think about the commands of the Lord. Are you trusting the Bible by obeying Jesus' commands to you in it? Are you turning from sexual immorality the way that 1 Thessalonians 4 says? Are you trusting that, that your husband is the leader of your family like we're taught in Ephesians 5? Are you loving your enemies like Jesus teaches us in Matthew 5? Listen to the way we sum up our responsibilities towards God's word in our church's confession of faith. We say the Bible should be believed in all that it teaches, obeyed in all that it commands, and trusted in all that it promises. Verse 11, now these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word. So welcome the word of God in. Trust the Bible. And just like we've already mentioned, the, the way to grow your trust in Scripture is to see how trustworthy Scripture is by getting yourself there, by reading it more. When Paul's writing back to the church in Thessalonica, this is a cool thing about these stories in Acts. 
You see him plant the gospel in these churches, and then he writes letters to them. We have a lot of those letters. This is what he says in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13. And we also thank God constantly for this, that when you, when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it, not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. So he, he reminds the folks in this story, even then the word of God is living and active. It does a work in us. And, and it does a work in our passage. Verse 12, many of them therefore believed with not a few Greek women of high standing as well as men. It will prove itself to you as you read it. Verse 11, now these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Many of them therefore believed with not a few Greek women of high standing as well as men. So let's pray that God's word would be central in our lives, the way we see in our passage, that we'd reason from the Bible, that we'd read the Bible, that we would trust the Bible.